0: I had to be real last year and I remember the day pretty well. I invited the two kind of head people at work and I pulled up my massive screen and it was full of Excel spreadsheets and I said, I just want to have a really open conversation with both of you. And I was like, sheer of a miracle, if something big doesn't happen, this business probably won't be alive in six months. And I said to them, look, this is not saying you don't have a job, but if I was in your shoes, I would be looking for a job. Welcome
1: to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world.
2: It's a world of change makers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Jard and
1: Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious
2: women who are building businesses of the future. So, strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland.
1: Believe it or not, Olivia Carr never finished high school. In fact, she dropped out at 17, became a single mum at 19, and by the age of 32, through hard work, had managed to land herself a dream job as GM of Pack Brands. Despite this achievement, deep down Olivia knew that she wanted to work for herself. And so during a trip to the US in search of inspiration, she discovered a gap in the market for silk pillowcases and sleepwear. As soon as she returned, shh, silk was born. It's been a difficult business journey for Olivia, and in this chat we speak about the challenges with manufacturing overseas, how coronavirus is impacting the production and distribution of silk, how she managed to get the most famous family in the world, aka the Kardashians, to support her brand, and why she's had to pivot when it comes to her social impact initiative, Sleep for Street. There's a lot of juice in this episode, and we hope that no matter what's going on in your business right now, there's
0: something for you to take away that's going to help. I had recently just resigned from a job as a general manager at Pacific Brands where I'd had so much insight into e-commerce. So I guess I went on a trip with my kids to America because it's like the land of opportunity and, you know, all the big ideas I thought I'd find there. So I truly went on that trip just to find out what my next business would be. And of course, I always travelled with a silk pillowcase because I was addicted to silk um, for all the beautiful reasons about silk. And the first night in New York, the next morning, it disappeared off my Um, pillow, went away with the laundry, went down to reception the next day thinking, I'll just get it back. And of course, no, they send everything away in New York. So it was never to be seen again. So as crazy and superficial as that sounds, um, to be in a new country, jet lagged, having never slept on cotton for like the previous 10 years, to me, it was an awful experience. So walking around the shops in New York, this was back in 2015, I thought, okay, I'll just go and buy a new one. There actually weren't silk pillowcases in the stores. So I was like, oh, this is crazy. Anyway, so I continued the holiday looking at different things, food truck businesses, a technology product, blah, 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 still not even thinking about silk as a as a business. Returned back to Australia, the, one of the very first things I truly did was went on the internet to buy a silk pillowcase because I just felt like even after five weeks, my skin was quite dry. Obviously, I have fine hair, so the bed hair was back. <laughs> um, and then I was like, damn, these things are so expensive. Like, you know, and they still are an expensive product that has not changed but nothing really stuck out to me. And I was like, oh, if I have to spend, you know, I think at the time it was $90 on this pillowcase. Like I want it to look nice on my bed. The one I had didn't have a zipper. So it used to slip off the pillow during the night and you could never present it nicely on your bed. So it became this kind of hindrance. And I was like, oh, why isn't there one with a zip? So, you know, so at least I can make my bed beautifully. And literally it was at that moment where I was like, oh my God, maybe this is the business. This is what I need to do. And I think it was three days later, I booked a trip to China and thought, look, let's just see where we go with it. So five years later, here we are.
1: Uh, I briefly want to talk about the name Silk. It can be a little bit of a tongue twister. Where did the name come from? And, um, you know, what are you doing at the moment? I mean, I'm sure you're getting questions like,
0: ah, it's difficult to say. Can we change it? Correct. So again, in hindsight, hindsight's a wonderful thing. (laughs) I probably would have renamed, well, I definitely would have renamed it. Something a lot easier to say, but also that made a lot more sense for everybody when you don't know the story of our brand. But it was very much strategically thought out. We started this business um, back in October 2015. And one thing I was very clear on from day one was that we would always have a philanthropic side of our business. So it started off with little secrets coming inside um, everybody's orders that would say, we've got a secret to share with you. You've just helped an orphan in Tigray or whatever it was that we were doing at that particular time that then obviously linked the whole story back to our name what was really challenging about that is for four years, we never told anybody, if you didn't purchase from us, you just thought we had the worst name on the internet, <laughs> which to be fair, it probably is up there. If there was a top 10 worst names of the internet, um, you know, no one knows how many H's, is it triple S? Like, yeah. no, it's S-H-H-H. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Which to this day, I believe is the correct way to spell Sh. <laughs> but it is really hard to say. Um, But look, would I change it? I've had branding experts in the past that say, you've got to just do a rebrand. You need to re, you know, you need to rename yourself now it's become such a bad name that it's a good name. So the name is here to stay.
2: Yeah. It's memorable. It is. <laughs> memorable. Definitely, yeah. especially when people say it. I think it's different when you read it compared to saying it. When you hear the shh silk, you're like, huh, yeah. okay.
0: Yeah. Are you telling to me that. to be quiet? Yeah. 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 So now there's, I mean, there is, um, we're doing some things at the moment with hotels and obviously we are playing on the shh sleep. Yes. Right? So there's a whole lot of things that we're doing with it. But no, the name is, is very hard to say. So
2: I want to dive into China because you said that as soon as you had the idea you literally jumped on a plane and went there to visit factories. Can you tell us about that whole process because it's really confusing and a was scary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So again, I knew nothing about China. Um I had dealt with China like in when I say China, Alibaba, um which I think years and years ago went still is I guess the one place you turn to if you're going to consider making any products in the world or looking to buy products. So my experience was really, you know, this is how you deal with China on the internet. I didn't know a lot about the difference between what you read and what you actually experience when you get to China. I now have so much understanding that, um, you know, just because you see a shiny factory on the end of an email does not mean that they actually, in fact, have a factory. So I'm so thankful that I went on that trip. For me, the reason I went there is because I had to make sure that, again, this is my experience from retail in the past, that we were dealing with the most ethical factory that I've believed we could find. So what I hadn't anticipated is that when I got there, I just had one supplier lined up, which is my first mistake. So if you are going to go to the efforts of traveling all the way to China, make sure you have five, six, maybe even seven different factories that you're going to go and see. So the first factory, they were really as, um, you know, as I landed in China, I started getting all the WeChat's or the WhatsApps um, trying to push me off visiting their their factory And I was like, no, like I've come all this way, like I don't understand, let's just go to the factory. And then they kept saying, well, it's an hour and a half away, it's two hours away, it's two and a half hours away. And I said, I don't care if it's eight hours away, I'm here, we're going to the factory. So I started thinking that was a little bit confusing, like why I'm here to see it, why are they not letting me? Sure enough, they pick me up from the hotel and the car stops 10 minutes later and I'm thinking, okay, that's a very short trip for a factory that's very far away. And we pull up to what I can only describe here as like a mini commission factory complex that you would see in Australia. Um, That's actually in a lot of towns, what I guess housing looks like in China. And we walk up three flights of stairs and we enter into a tiny little room that's probably about the size of, let's just say a, a kitchen in a standard Australian home. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, now I know why they didn't want me to come to their pseudo factory there were six ladies in this room with sewing machines. It was hot. There was an iron in the corner. There was no ventilation. And they were, I imagine doing samples. They weren't actually set up to do manufacturing. And the whole time when I'm saying this is not a factory, they were looking at me blankly saying like, as if they'd never told me otherwise, and that they hadn't sent me previous photos showing 150 machinists. It was a very, very scary experience. Scary because um, what tends to happen in China, it's so competitive for suppliers over there to find new customers that once they've found you, they don't want to let you go. So, what I found then was happening is I'd get back to my hotel room and the car would still be parked outside because, of course, they were watching, making sure I wouldn't deal with anyone else. Um, It just became, it was honestly like for my first time, it was a pretty scary experience. I look back now and think, okay, well, what would the worst be? What would the worst happen if I did invite someone else into the hotel? Probably nothing. Um, But if it's your first time, I feel like those type of intimidation tactics can be quite hard to handle. And as a female, I just wasn't used to that type of business. So I was lucky enough during that trip to find some other factories and, you know, we just went and met with them in their offices. But then of course, because I turned up and I was from another country and we had never spoken before, they knew I'd obviously was in China because you need, um, you need invitations to get to China. So they knew I was there seeing other factories So then it became really hard to get my hands on any samples or any fabric because then they didn't trust me because they thought I was comparing it to other factories. The whole thing was honestly incredibly challenging and I still pushed through. My advice now would be obviously it's not imperative to go to China, especially not as early as I did. I feel like you should do the whole sample process online, deal with at least 10 suppliers, see how quickly they send things to you, depending on the product, like check out the quality. Is it genuine? Can you get it tested? And then when you've kind of narrowed it down to maybe three suppliers that you actually want to work with, ask them all for an invitation letter so that they each think you're Mm -hmm. coming to see them. Tell them as little as possible about your movements in China. Um, Or you could take the other approach where you could just be completely honest and say, I'm coming over to see all three suppliers and just control the situation yourself. So that's definitely how I do things now. I'm very open now with our suppliers that we have other suppliers Um, And particularly right now, we're in a process where we are now trying to secure as many suppliers as we can, because rather than sticking to three big factories, I'm probably, in all seriousness, going to have to find at least 20 small suppliers to try and get my normal orders.
2: So how practically are you going to go about finding those 20 factories? Mm.
0: So I've been working on it now pretty much since the news broke. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting time because for those that already deal with China, you'll understand the impact of Chinese New Year on manufacturing every year anyway, for those that don't deal with China, you probably think, okay, so the factory's closed for two weeks. It can't really be that big of an impact on business. It really is because what happens is a lot of people prepare new orders during that time. A lot of businesses finally get to stop um, you know, their day-to-day and get to you know, work on their forecasts and then they're all kind of sending their big orders at this one time. So what happens is obviously, again, um, on the other side of things, China's going to work through the best orders first. So you'll often find that that two-week closure for Chinese New Year's might mean, say in our case, where we're not the biggest in the industry, it might take another month before they even get to our order. So something like what's happening at the moment, which is completely unfortunate, um, firstly from a health perspective, but then secondly for business um, globally, is that the backlog at the moment with orders, the backlog with shipping um, is kind of horrendous, to be honest. Um, So as soon as we heard about this, I knew it was going to be like to be honest, I thought it was just going to be another two weeks. I thought, okay, it's just like having a second Chinese New Year. We're nearly coming up to one month now where production really hasn't started again in China. Um, I was reading yesterday the news that about 10% of the workforce is back. Um, so it's going to be quite some time before it's back to normal capacity. So again, I started from the beginning. I went back onto Alibaba and I'm just honestly trying to find some you know, good legitimate um, suppliers that we can work with.
2: You said that production has stopped because of coronavirus. Why is that? Is that because um, workers aren't in the fields harvesting the silk? They're not able to move to the factories? Like how?
0: Yeah. Again, this is my understanding and I try as much as possible to give as much of this information directly from our suppliers because, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's floating around on, on the media at the moment and you can find kind of conflicting stories. So I'm trying as hard as possible in our towns to understand what is actually going on. So... Firstly, what happens with Chinese New Year is 95% of workers from factories always return home to their Chinese homes to help with the farming, to see their families. It's really the only opportunity they get all year to see and visit their family. At the moment, one of the biggest impacts to return back to production is there's still a lot of travel bans happening within China and all of these people live in different um, provinces. Mm. So it's actually at the moment they can't get back to work. There's some towns that are still on, they're allowed out of the house. They have these little cards that get um, hole-punched every day where they're allowed out of the home for two hours a day. They're still doing, um, you know, checking temperatures and things like that. So it's more internally, logistically, depending on what town these people are in as to whether or not they can actually return. Whereas the town, my understanding, the town where most of our silk is manufactured, there is factories open, but they're not at full capacity with workers. Mm -hmm. Harvesting is another thing. So harvesting, um, again, will depend on how many people are available available Obviously, silk, um, you sort of take this for granted when you see silk products, it's still grown. It's, you know, there's still mm. got to be, you know, all the the mulberry leaves need to be fed to the worms. The cocoons need to come. This is this is all a very manual process. So it's, I guess, like if you don't harvest wheat for a year, there'd be a wheat shortage. Um, for us, it will be, it will mean that if they can't return to harvest, um, there'll be a shortage on silk. And then what does that mean? The cost of silk will go up and silk's been rising for the last kind of seven to 10 years anyway. And it will mean, you know, we can't we can't pass those costs on to our customers. So, you know, what am I looking at? Um, at the moment, honestly, it's just what are the other products that we can look to either manufacture locally? Is it that we get to the point where we can find raw silk that's already been manufactured? We bring it over. Can we get people here to make it? Like it's, yeah, there's a lot going on right now.
1: Do you have someone else helping you to look at those alternative solutions? I mean, yeah, you said Purchasing silk that's already been produced, you yeah. know, finding other factories that you can work with will um, spread the risk. Yeah, but yeah, you're still facing a lot of the same issues, which yeah. is getting the silk over here from China.
0: Yeah, and I still look after operations for China, um, for the business. So I don't think this is a problem I would put on to any of my mm. staff purely because also I don't want to worry my staff. I don't want people at work to think, oh my god, does this mean if we don't have silk in six months, I don't have a job? Definitely not. Um, because like I said before, we would just find other things to do. Um, We're going to talk about it later. It's kind of interesting how the world works. I built a brand in 29 days over Christmas and I had no idea at that time about coronavirus. And for some reason, I've been thinking about this idea for the last kind of two, three years, and that just felt like the time to launch it. And surprisingly, there's no shortage with that product. So maybe we just, uh, in six months, we focus on that brand while the other one kind of repairs and, and grows.
2: So let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about money. Because I think that, you know, it's really interesting to know the real figures and like how much somebody like you invested in Ugh. the business up front. And so you're in China, you found a factory, you had yeah. your samples made, you finalized your product, and then you obviously had to purchase the product. Correct. And you invested a lot of money into yeah. that first order. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. So look, there's a lot I would do differently. Like in in all seriousness, I probably would not start a silk business. And, you know, when I started, there was like five or six Now there's over 300, which I think is insane because if I knew then what I know now about the rising cost of silk and, you know, dealing and transacting in US dollars, I would not start this business today. Like I genuinely wouldn't. I obviously wouldn't stop the business now because I love it. But it has been an absolute like money sucker um and for a lot of reasons like I think you know the US dollar is not helping us um it's at an all time low at the moment so let's just add that into the mix um that's you know for every dollar we spend at the moment it's costing us a dollar 58 so that's that's a massive change to business but when I first started the business again I was so naive I was like okay I had 53,000 something something dollars in the bank and I honestly thought that would get me through like at least my first stock get me through maybe like 3 to 6 months and I'd be fine Um, I truly didn't understand, like it's easy to look at a single price of a unit and think, oh, okay, maybe let's just call it $15 US. Oh, that doesn't seem like a lot. But then you've got so many variants. You've got, okay, that $15 US at the time might've converted to maybe 19 Australian. And then you've got cost of shipping it in here. Then you've got customs the minute it touches, you know, the docks. And then you've got GST if you're selling it here. And then there's just like all these other, so you're, Initial $15 USD can really blow out at least a double. And then if you start wholesaling, um, you don't get the full RRP, you get half of that. So you, you can sit back and be like sometimes, wow, on some units we're not even breaking even if you don't work out your money properly or your costs from the beginning. I really didn't manage the cost of the business in the first kind of 18 months well at all. And I think if I'm honest with myself, the reason I didn't is because I knew, I already knew it wasn't a scalable business in the way that I was doing it. You know, I didn't, I didn't do enough negotiating at the beginning. I went with one supplier, so there's a lot I did wrong um, initially, which is why the business probably ended up costing so much. I'm not a Facebook expert. I think in the first 12 months we threw $224,000 at Facebook and there was a bit like, there wasn't a return. Um, you know, we're with an agency now and I shared that with them. And so I think I went with the, with the mentality that to get this business as big as possible, we need to be as fast as possible. And that's probably your point before where I was like, I, I tried to grow it too fast. Growing something that fast does not mean it's profitable. It just means you're making it big, which actually just means you're spending a lot of money, which I think is fine if you've got investors, because that's kind of the point. You want to be able to grow a business, but when it's your own money, we quickly went from 50,000 to 100,000 to 500,000 to a million to, you know, and then it got to the point where, um, you know, my fiance and I, you know, after he'd sold it, Um, investment property. And like literally we'd stopped our renovation and every cent went into it. We sort of stopped and went, we just can't get, like we literally financially cannot keep doing this. And we had this crazy motto at home where it's like, invest to grow, invest to grow, Mm. which was really just a major cover for both of us not sitting down and being honest with each other and saying, no, this is not working. Like it's not working. Um, So I would never want to see nor give advice to anyone to ever take the approach that I took But when you get that far in, you sort of feel like now you have to get up. So you have to, you know, you have to keep fighting. Even if you look at it and think, oh, maybe we shouldn't keep going. There's no, there's no option to not keep going.
2: Yeah. I was going to ask, like once you get to that point where you go, shit, like we've invested over a million dollars and it's not working, something has to change. What's in your power to change when you're that deep?
0: Yeah. I think all the first thing is you need to start looking at your numbers and detaching. For me, it took a long time to detach from this business. Um, It was almost like, you know, I probably made references in the first couple of years. Oh, it's my third child. No, don't do that. Never attach yourself to your business. It had almost become part of our home, kind of, it's part of our debt. It's my problem. And and there's a lot of guilt that comes with that. And it's really hard to run a business and continue to grow a business from a happy, inspiring place when you're really just chasing a number. Um, So yeah, a lot's changed in the last 12 months. Um, and you know, we, we've not put any money into the business since October, 2017, no, 2018, um, which for me was the biggest win of this business. And it's funny because up until that point, we hadn't realized nor ever tested, could this business pay for itself? We just kept throwing money at it, but we'd never actually stepped and said, well, what happens if we don't this month? Well, sure. What happens is you start being a lot more strategic about the things that you get involved in, how much stock you carry. I mean, at one point, we were carrying, you know, over half a million dollars in cost of business in our factory. If you multiply that out, that's a lot to sell. This morning, we looked at our numbers. We do it at the beginning of every month because you have to give it to your accountant. And I was like, something must be wrong here. Like, how can we only have X amount of, you know, stock in the factory? And it was a tiny number. And I was like, no, that's right. Because now we manage our stock properly. Oh, I feel like I could just write the how not to build a brand online. And yeah, anyway, so that's, that's how you can waste cash in a business. Wow.
1: Yeah. What other strategic decisions did you make to to retain more cash in the business and yeah. not just be kind of throwing money, throwing money at the business? Yeah.
0: So last year was a pretty dark year um, for the business. Look, and in saying that, I say it's dark, but I should be proud because a lot of businesses fail in the first three years. Mm. So we survived that first hurdle somehow. Um, but last year was going into year four. And I think that for me is when I, you know, I was looking at our numbers almost daily, and really kind of starting as much as I did not want to take this approach because I left corporate and everything in corporate is about P&Ls. You know, when things are tough, cut, cut, cut. And, you know, the first thing that they normally cut, to be fair, is staff. And one of my things is I will never cut staff, like no matter how hard it gets. And I think I just said this to you guys, you know, even if we don't have silk, nobody's leaving, um, you know, I'll fight for that. But I had to be real last year and I remember the day pretty well. I invited the two kind of head people at work and I pulled up my massive screen and it was full of Excel spreadsheets. And I said, I just want to have a really open conversation with both of you. And I was like, sheer of a miracle, if something big doesn't happen, this business probably won't be alive in six months. And I said to them, look, this is not saying you don't have a job, but if I was in your shoes, I would be looking for a job. That was hard though, because they were, as I said, they were my two kind of head employees at the time. Um, A miracle did happen. We got another huge order from a hotel, um, from the Beverly Hills Hotel, which obviously allowed us, but I don't want to run a business where you're waiting for that thing to fall out of the sky, you know, at the 11th hour um, of the financial year. So, you know, a lot is different this year. Um, I started paying myself on the 1st of December because I also realised if this business is going to survive, it also has to pay me. I can't be a slave to this business. I would never work for another brand for four years unpaid. And again, if I'm really going to detach and run a business, I need to be an employee of the business, not the business. So yeah, yep. And I hope this isn't scaring people off starting business um, because it is fun and exciting, but I, I also want to be real. Like it's, it's full on. And I hope that by sharing some of this with others, that if you do have a business or if you're thinking of starting a business, and perhaps it's tough right now or perhaps you're not making money. It doesn't mean you have a bad business. You just need to go right back to the beginning and probably do do a lot of things the way that large corporates do, which is start with the numbers, 100%. work out what needs to go, work out what needs to happen um, and manage your business properly. Don't live in this kind of unicorn world that I've tried to live in.
2: want to pivot a little bit, going from like, you know, the realness of a business to the Kardashians, which I understand is a bit of a ridiculous segue, but we do want to pivot (laughs) and talk about the Kardashians a little bit because you've managed to do what not many people have done before. And that's get your brand in front of the most famous family in the world for free, basically. So, you know, I know that this story has been told a lot in the media, Mm. You, you know, you like broke into their compound and drop something on their you know, driveway. Yeah. And I know that that's not the actual story. So we would love to give you the chance to tell us fully unedited what yeah. actually happened.
0: I mean, there's parts of that that are very true, but it also <laughs> feels like a world, like a lifetime ago. Like I almost feel ridiculous now when I look back at this because just how kind of silly I was in a lot of things that I did. And look, sure it worked, um, but again, it wouldn't work today. Um, and I wouldn't do that today. It's quite disrespectful what I did. Um, I didn't obviously set out to be disrespectful, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. So I literally have this idea to start this Silk Pillowcase brand, and then I create vision boards because for me, everything's visual, and all that's plastered over it is the Kardashians. So for someone else stepping into my, you know, spare room at the time would be thinking, "Uh, what, like, how does that relate to building a brand? Where's the strategy behind? Like, no, it's literally, and we still have the photos that I had in my office today. um, Because for me, like my one overarching goal when I set this was I give myself six months and I will get Kim Kardashian to sleep on my pillowcase. People were like, right, good luck. You've Like literally good luck, right? You've got, (laughs) firstly, we don't understand silk pillowcases. How is that a business? And secondly, good luck. There's a lot about this that I would do again I would just do it in a much more respectful ethical way. Um I didn't know the background. So anyway, I jump on a plane as you do. Um I find some business addresses. Um I was actually going to see Chris Jenner. So that's the first part of the story I need to clarify. Um despite what you see on the show, and I think they're coming up to like season 19, so they are filmed at least 6 months behind. So that's the other thing I didn't realize. So had I have known that they were renovating their driveway and you couldn't access, I would not have wasted my money on a flight. If I had have known they lived behind these huge gates, which you never see on the show and it's like entering a prison and you have to hand your, over your, pretty much your passport and everything to get in, I would never have gone. But of course this is not on the TV show on on E. (laughs) So as naive as I was, I, you know, I literally jump on the plane, hire the car, get in the car, so pumped honestly in my brain thinking I'm just going to pull up out the front of a house. Like, and now when I say it, it sounds so ridiculous because it's as if they wouldn't live in a gated community. <laughs> but in Australia, I don't know about gated communities. Like I don't, they, I've no, never seen one. Very here in America, America, very so I had never seen it, never experienced it, never saw it on the show. Pull up. My first obstacle is obviously this huge brick building with all the boom gates, the security, everything. And I'm thinking, ah, interesting. It all happened so quickly. I wind my window down and this guy says, you know, how can I help you? I need your ID, hand the ID. And I say, I'm here to see Jenner Communications. I have a meeting. Okay. That part, I didn't have a meeting, but in my mind, I had a parcel I needed to drop off so I could kind of, you know, slightly link those together. And he actually takes my license, has a look at it, has a look at me and says, do you know where you're going? Again, I'm like, please God, don't like, don't make a noise on the navigator. Yes, I know where I'm going. Like, complete, yep, yeah, hands back the license, opens the boom gate. At that point, the adrenaline kicks in. And then I think, oh God, I just said I have a meeting. Now it's all starting to come to me. I don't have a meeting. I didn't know I was going to have to lie to get in here. Ah, but what do I do? I also can't turn around at this point because I've just said, and he's just opened it. So I just have to go. So I go in the estate and I'm thinking, oh my God, like, honestly, I wish this was filmed for my own. Like, yes! I'd yes! Love so to watch I know, so do I, because I'm playing it in my head. Yeah. So I get to the address and I mean, obviously in this estate, it's pretty full on. Like some of the world's biggest celebrities live in these estates. Like you can imagine just the whole experience was quite mind blowing. Anyway, I pull up to this residence and then I'm like, oh my God. Like talk about starstruck. There was two custom Rolls Royce parked on the grass out the front. Matt Black and Matt Gray, like (laughs) pimped out. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Here's me in my little like car. I'm idling out the front and all I can think at this point is the cops are on their way. Like they're probably seeing this car idling and all of this would have happened in about 30 seconds, but it felt like three hours. I'm like, what do I do? There's a huge do not cross like the tape because they're renovating the bloody driveway, which happened to be on the show six months later. And oh I'm like, God. well, it's now that's telling me don't cross. But also I'm here. I have this box inside the box. I have a very important letter. Ah, oh, what do I do? Like I literally don't know what to do. Now, I'm a huge believer in the universe. I was manifesting so much on the plane on the way over. Like I truly believed I was going to drop these things off that were always going to be for Kim. And a UPS van turns up at that exact moment on this day for that residence. He gets out, slides his truck open, he steps over the tape and I'm like, this is it. This is my one opportunity. Now, the only kind of regret slash like curious part of my brain is like, why did I not stay and wait for the door to open? But I think at that point I was... I was uncomfortable. Like I was genuinely uncomfortable and I was probably scared. So he puts his big box down, he presses the doorbell and I can hear voices inside. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're approaching. Like, honestly, I must have been like, do I stay? What do I do? I think if I had stayed, I would probably be in prison or I would have been locked up or yeah, God knows what else. Probably. I later found out in America they can shoot to yeah. protect yes, like the lawyers, yes, so Yeah, the law is. So
1: thank goodness I did But didn't. that didn't cross your mind at the time. Well, I didn't know that at thank the time. Thank God.
0: No. <laughs> so I drop my box and I leave. But then I leave and I don't just probably once again do what most normal people do, go and have a drink and be like, well, that was amazing. No, I go to the next gated community estate around the corner because I then want to go to Courtney's house. Oh, God. Oh, my God. You wanted to try it again. Because I was on such a high that I was like, well, Courtney loves interiors. Got to go see Courtney. I can do this again. <laughs> now, the difference is, now, at this point, I obviously do know about gated communities, so I probably shouldn't have done this. I get there, it's a similar situation, but this time it's nearly five. So the cars are banked up to get into this estate. And there's like a Mexican looking much younger security guard. And of course I go up, I think, oh, I'm just going to do the same thing. Hand my license over. He says, have you got a meeting? I say she's expecting some pillowcases because I didn't want to lie because I knew the question was coming. So what does he do? He picks the phone up and calls the house. Oh God. I'm sitting in the car. I've got 10 cars behind me and I'm thinking, oh, oh. I'm like, screwed. Like, what yeah, am I going to do? It. I'm caught. Yeah. Someone answers the phone. To this day, I have no idea who it was that answered the house phone. And he's just eyeballing me and he's going, so you're not expecting pillowcases. So you have no idea who Olivia Carr is because he's got my license. And I'm thinking, I'm not getting my license back. What? Like, I don't know what happens from this point. They have a like conversation for about 30 seconds. He is like mad. He's looking at me because I didn't say the name. I said the property address that I was there to see. Yeah. So he probably thought that was a bit odd. And then he gives me my thing back and he said, you could have said you were here to see Courtney. She's not expecting you get out of here. And then I leave. But then I think to myself, oh, my God, the girls are so tight that they would have received their parcel at Chris's house, which I later find out Kim and Kanye were there because I Google those cars and I find out that's who it was. And I was like, oh, "Oh my my God, she was in the house. Why did I stay? (laughs) And then I realize Courtney's probably been like, yeah, this crazy girl from Australia, she's tried to rock up to my place to drop off pillowcases. Now, they obviously thought, like, that's a big effort to go to. So maybe like I never know to this day mm. why they decided to use the pillowcases, but they must have thought, wow, like she really wanted us to see these things. So three months later, through a much more ethical way at a launch party, um, one of Kim's stylists at the time received some of our product and they go, Oh, you know, the marble pillowcases, she's seen these. They get in contact with our PR and they say, look, she loved your pillowcases, but she actually wanted king size. I dropped off queen because again, not knowing anything about America. And in Australia at that time, we only had queens, so she mm-hmm. couldn't even use them. So that was kind of the start of where it all happened. We made her some amazing king size, got them monogrammed. It was the start of my mon- Like it was an amazing story, but the, uh-huh. I think the important thing is that the media never talk about was actually what was inside the box that went to Kris Jenner's um, residence. Tell us. And it was it was a four-page letter. It talked about my life. It talked about my, mm-hmm. I guess, my adventures of being a 19-year-old um, pregnant mum It talked about my triumphs. It talked about my goals. It talked about everything. Importantly, it acknowledged that what I was asking of them, a lot of companies would normally need to pay a lot of money for. I was very honest in the fact that I didn't have that budget, but I had a huge goal and that goal was to always help the community. And what I was really asking of them was to help me with that bigger goal and and making a commitment to them that one day I would do good on that promise, um, which you girls know we did last year in October. Um, which we're probably going to touch on later. But I think that's the part the media leave out. It's the fact that I was sharing with them that you know my experience with homelessness when I was in New York, which is also why I started the brand, there's just so much that was in that letter that I think really spoke to the girls um, at the time. So,
2: yeah, and I think that acknowledgement that you know you acknowledged the worth, their their worth and their correct. value and mm-hmm. the value that they could bring for your business. yeah, and you acknowledge that you didn't have the budget, but you were kind of in you know appealing to their, I guess, you know, ethical side, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, they would have appreciated that.
0: Yeah, so it yeah. was a crazy
1: story. That is a crazy story. Yeah. I feel
2: like I need a wine. I after. know. <laughs> I know my
1: heart's racing. I've got nervous for you for yeah. everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah Just don't great. be
0: scared. And I think the don't whole point of why I did that and why I continue to do these types of things is because, one, it's a lot more fun mm. um, and it cuts through. Like if you want to achieve something major and you don't have a budget, which we still to this day don't have a marketing budget. You need to be creative, but you also need to be, I guess, impressionable. Like you need to be fun and leave an impression. So yeah, it doesn't require money. So don't let that hold you back. Just be brave. Definitely. And you
1: have, you've built a really strong relationship with the Kardashians over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us what else you've done to kind of harvest you know, that
0: relationship and, um, yeah, and what's worked. Yeah, so I think initially um, it was more just sharing with them who I was um, to decide whether they even wanted to have a relationship with me, Mm. um, in fairness. And when it was obvious um, that they did want to have a relationship with maybe not me personally or maybe it was me, I don't know if it was the brand or me, um, but either it was really then about nurturing that relationship and which is something we still do today. Um, I mean, it was only as recent as um, two weeks ago when we sent some beautiful stuff for Stormy's birthday, That's probably a really good example. It's so many brands just send their products and these girls get thousands of parcels every week of the newest, the flashiest, you know, whatever it is that a brand's trying to pitch to them. We've never really taken that approach. It's always been for every 10 times we have touch points with them, eight of them don't include our product. So it might be when Kim launched her beauty brand, we researched what is her favorite champagne and then got magnums of them sent over to her so she could share it with her friends when we launched our sleep for street, I worked out who was the you know favorite florist. And just so happens to be the most expensive florist in both Paris and LA. Made a call to them and said, "What do the girls like? What colors do they like? What sort of florals do you normally organise for them?" Um, and they cost an arm and a leg. Um, these florals are incredible, but it's it's also like I look at that and I think we need to send things for the girls that they like. It's not about sending over a box of pillowcases and saying, "Hey, you know, here's here's mm-hmm. us again." It's more about nurturing that relationship and really getting to know them. Um, I think, you know, there's a, um, a photo that goes around a lot on the internet of Kylie wearing our sleep mask with her name all over it. That was her 20th birthday. The reason that happened is because we made cookies that went in that box that matched every single shade of lipstick she was about to launch for her birthday collection. So it was more about the cookies and we were just lucky that she shared that product. So again, I think that whole like activation cost $126 with the cookies. So you don't have to have million-dollar budgets. You just need to be thoughtful, but you also need to be authentic. You can't do it once, sit back and wait. If you commit that you want to make a relationship with anyone, whether it's a hotel, whether it's a, I don't know, a real estate agency, it's got to be long-term and you need to put the effort in and you need to have regular touch points with them and it needs to be very much a two-way relationship. Yeah, So how do you be actually, selfish.
2: How do you actually structure that in your business? Like, Do you have a role within your business who is... PR and gifting and they re- you have a hit list yeah. of people and you research and then you create these
0: gifts. Like how yeah. do you structure that? So for us, it's a whole team because to be fair, it's probably the most fun part of our business. Mm-hmm. So it's something that other than my mum who's in her 60s who probably isn't overly excited about, you know, putting together cookie boxes or, you know, making lipstick piñatas um, and all the crazy things we've done. Um, but it is everyone upstairs and it can literally be, obviously we have calendars of important dates and important dates for us include Things that happen in people's lives, um, whether it's to do with their kids. And then we sit back and it's like craft days. It's like fun. And we just come up with ideas. And, you know, sometimes we don't have as much time, but a lot of times we, you know, it's really like a team building around these particular presents. So, yeah, it's fun. So, we want to talk about sleep for Street. Yes.
1: Um, you know, I think this is, it's the reason behind why you do what you do. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the initiative?
0: Yeah. Um, so know. I don't know, had we launched it when I met with you last time or we were about to? I think you, you had. Had. Yeah, we we had. had. We've learned a lot. Um, so for those of you who don't know what Sleep for Street is, Sleep for Street is, I guess, our, um, you know, we've done a lot of philanthropic things since the day we launched. And we then made a decision as a business last year that we actually need to share with the world all these amazing things that we're doing, but they were all very segmented. And for me, um, again, I've come from um, working for the Breast Cancer Foundation, and I'm big on making an impact. And I feel like if you're doing ten little things, you're not really making a big impact. So the team and I got together and we looked at all the things we care about, and homeless um, is one of those things that I'm obviously very passionate about. And we decided we were going to launch Sleep for Street, and Sleep for Street was built with from such a place of love, like cannot tell you the the amount of love that it was built with. Um, and the reason I emphasize that is because I, I don't want to say unfortunately, but we are going through a transition of change with Sleep for Street at the moment. And that is purely for the unfortunate things and the comments that we get on Facebook mainly. Um, and every, every brand faces, I don't like the word trolls, every brand faces negative commentary on their Facebook. And as a brand, I'm really lucky to say that Silk has never experienced that. But Sleep for Street has experienced an abundance of it, um, which really actually breaks my heart because, you know, we we started this mission and it is self-funded. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, we weren't making profit until July last year. So it's not like we even had the funds to build this, but we believed in it so much that we were doing it anyway. And Sleep for Street was designed where we'd come up with this world first, waterproof, light blocking, i um, mask for the homeless. And with every order, we would then forward them to homeless shelters um, throughout the world which we are doing our first drop when I'm there in April, um, should that trip go ahead. So we're still going good on our, our mission um, to every order up until that date, but we are unfortunately going to have to reshape the program because a lot of the commentary that's come through is, you know, wouldn't money be better? Um, doesn't this pose a safety risk for people? Why would they want to blindfold themselves when there's so much violence on the street? And like, it just... It goes on and on and it actually goes into quite a dark place online and then you know what it's like. A few comments and then it turns into 10 comments and then 10 people are currently having this whole conversation and then I'm sitting there reading it thinking, whoa, stop. Like we're doing something. We're not saying that we're going to change homelessness. We're not here as the one sole answer. Mm. But the reason it was started is because sleep deprivation is at the very beginning of what then turns into a lot of times drug use to try and sleep alcoholism to try and sleep, schizophrenia because they don't sleep. Um, We were trying to just aid in that very, I guess, first piece of it, which was let's just give them an extra hour of day sleep. Now, we never said this was to use at night. It's, you know, if you actually, like we did, we spent so much time at homeless shelters talking to homeless people. The safest time they feel to sleep is during the day. The hardest time to sleep is during the day because of the light. So we were like, right, they're going to sleep in the day. Let's give them a mask that blocks it out. Let's aid. But I'm not going to get on Facebook and have this hour-long conversation with every person mm-hmm. that doesn't stop and think for a moment. Actually, they're just trying to do good. So we got some good advice um, from a businessman in Australia who has some amazing philanthropic um, initiatives um, all over the world, and he provided me with some solid feedback. Like I was pretty torn down when this happened. Like I'm got pretty thick skin, but when people were tearing my biggest passion down, I took it pretty personally. And he said to me, you know, the three big things that every human needs is food, shelter and companionship. We felt we were falling into the kind of shelter space, but maybe it was too disconnected. So he gave me some solid advice that maybe we reshape our initiative with the homeless to kind of empower them um, for change. So we're going to try and come up with some sort of, and we're still in our planning phase with this, where, you know, maybe it's as simple as reusable shopping bags and we provide the shelters with packs of them that they can then sell while they're sitting on the pavement rather Mm -hmm. than having to beg and we empower them to make their own money um, so that it then gives them purpose that they then see kind of, but look, who knows? I'll probably still get comments about that too, because for me, it's not about just giving the money. We want to, we want. to. We genuinely want to be able to see the impact that we're having on people, um, but Sleep for Street, 100% will be changing. So you have something else very exciting happening in the wings. Can you
1: tell us a little bit more about Ponytail Pro? Yes, much better name. Can we just start? There? Love it. Yeah. So easy to say. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: So let's start with that because I think that's important. So Ponytail Pro is, um, let's call it the next brand under our um, umbrella of brands. So yeah, it's essentially Ponytail Extensions, where the idea came from, it'd um, been sitting at work. I had samples for a little while, so I, I had had the idea for a while. It came from a trip to China where I had an experience where I actually saw some hair extensions being made, real hair, and I was horrified how dirty this stuff looks before it's chemically cleaned or however, I don't know how it's cleaned, but however it's cleaned, I'm assuming it's chemically cleaned. And I was like, oh, that's how hair extensions, like there's parts of hair extensions that come from like the drains in hairdressing salons and like off the shop floor and then they all get put together. That's That and that's, and <laughs> that's probably the better side of real hair extensions. The other side that I then learnt about is the, what I like to call the black market of hair extensions, which there's an amazing 10-minute video on um, Refinery29 on YouTube mm. and it's literally the dark side of hair extensions. And it's um, a lot of hair still comes from India and Thailand and places like this where they are actually exploiting children and women and mm. literally cutting their hair off often without notice, you know, mm. pinning them down. There's just a whole, this lady was amazing, this video. And I I can't see something and unsee it. Yeah. So once I discovered this last year, I was like, at some point, I have to do something about this problem and it just wasn't the right time and and my break over Christmas was the right time. And we like to call it cruelty-free, right? It's synthetic hair. I'm not going to say it's, you know, with silk, we're all about pure and it's the best in the market. This is not, right? This is, if you're looking for hair extensions that are going to last you years and they are the best quality on the market, that is not Ponytail Pro, What Ponytail Pro is, is cruelty-free. We do not believe in exploitation of women or children for hair. It's a fun accessory if you've got a weekend out, if you're going for a girls' night. It's a piece of hair that can transform your look. You'll probably get maybe six to ten uses out of it. They're going to cost you $50, $60 Australian. It's not a big investment, but you still get the same look. You can wash them. You can heat style them. So we still made sure that we acquired Mm. the best quality synthetic hair we could. But for me, I wanted to keep it real. I wanted to be like girls, you know, because I know there's a lot of synthetic hair out there that's over $100, which I think is madness. Um, But it was for the girls who also, you know, there's a photo um, that we saw of um, Khloe Kardashian and she has an entire room full of hair extensions. I was like, wow, that's cool. So we've developed a similar looking product. It's in a little suit bag. And if you want to have a whole room full of hair extensions and playful colours and whatever, you should still be able to have that at a price that you can afford because at the end of the day, it's just a hair extension. So it's a bit of fun. It's fun. Yeah. So that's Pretty Tail Pro.
2: We'd love you to give a shout out to one woman or it could be a man who has helped you on your business building journey.
0: Mm. There are so many. Um, I feel like I'm going to give two. Kate from Adore Beauty. We love Kate. Yes, we do <laughs> love Kate. And I don't know if you saw her nails last week, but I yeah. went and had them done. So Kate, you haven't seen them, but I have definitely copied your nails. Um, so Kate um, is incredible. For those of you who don't know, Adore Beauty, been around for 20 years this year. Just an incredible woman. She's incredibly real. So I think that for me was the first thing. Like this whole real thing, I really kind of am drawn to that. But Kate actually took me on as a mentor before she became one of our um, best customers. So that was interesting, but she always kept it real. She was probably at the point where I needed to start understanding our stock and our numbers and, um, really helped me to sort of leave those sessions and say, okay, she's right. I need to get serious about business. Like it's not a joke anymore. So I really, um, Kate, if you're listening, I, I've said it before, but thank you. Um, I definitely still to this day, take everything you say, um, very seriously. And then the second one for me, um, is a new relationship, um, that's only formed in the last kind of six to eight months, but as genuinely changed my entire outlook, not only on business, but on life. Um, It was at the end of November last year, I, and I'm sure my competitors will love to hear this, but I'm going to put it out there. I was ready to walk, Um, Mm. genuinely ready to Mm. walk. So she saved me from the mindset that I was in. Um, And I won't say I was quitting. I had just lost all sense of purpose of who I as an individual was. Um, Her name's Ryan Haddon. Um, So she's really taught me the importance of detaching Um, and I've touched wood. I haven't had an anxiety attack since seeing her and anxiety was new for me, um, in the world of business. I had never experienced it up until uh, about year three and it's debilitating. It's scary. Mm -hmm. Um, so I won't probably for a very long time, I won't stop having those sessions um, with Ryan. And what's interesting now is they started very much about me and discovering and working on me. And now she's almost become a business coach because our last two sessions have been about my trip, um, in April and they've been about some really big business goals and how I will approach um, these situations. So yeah, a life coach can, can be a lot more than um, just about life. So yeah, massive shout out to those two women. Um, And finally, what's one thing that you
1: need right now in your business or maybe (laughs) in your personal life? I mean, I must say I feel a lot
0: better after having this chat. Um, Oh, good. Oh, we're done. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One thing I need right now I mean, I said it before, and I'm not, I'm actually not joking about this, is I probably need other women, business owners, men um, that are kind of maybe at the moment unsure of what's happening with the world economically and and business. And I probably need us all to reach out to each other and support each other. Mm. Um, You know, I get incredible support off my fiance. I get incredible support off my mum. It's not quite the same as somebody else that's walking where you're walking at the moment. And I don't care the size of the business. We're all kind of walking into an unknown, like none of us know the impact yet. None of us know what this all really means. None of us know it could be done tomorrow. None of us know this. And I think um, it's just important right now that, again, be brave, but I feel like we all need to come together, Um, you know, whether that we all just meet for coffee or whoever it is that's feeling this way. Mm. And we just try and support each other as best we can, whatever that means for each of us, Um, because I don't want to think that it's all doom and gloom. I want to think that this is an experience that a lot of businesses can learn from, but I don't think any of us will be able to survive doing it alone. Mm. So um, for anyone that's listening, maybe you don't have a business, but you work in a business and you might have some ideas or, yeah, it'd be nice to think that we could start some sort of, yeah, support. And information this, sharing. Yeah.
2: You know, I think learning from other people who've, who are going through the same thing yeah. or have gone through the same thing before is powerful. So. Because if
0: it's not corona, in 10 years it could be, you know, something <laughs> else. Jeez, what if the mm. internet crashed? Like, what does mm. that look like? Like, there's just so many unknowns that could happen. Mm. But it doesn't mean the end. It just means, it actually means new. But we all have to adapt. Yep. Adapt or die. Adapt or dies, die. die is not an option. What a way to end. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Olivia. Thank, Thank you. you.
2: Reflecting on this chat with Olivia, if there's one thing we took away it's that when the going gets tough, as a business community we all need to come together. At Lady Ladybrains we really believe in collaboration over competition. In uncertain times when we're all trying to solve problems on the fly, let's come together, share knowledge and ideas and support each other in any way that we can. To connect with other female founders and side hustlers who you can help and collaborate with right now and to continue the conversation with us, come across to our Lady Brains Facebook group. We are in there all the time, chatting, answering questions, and sharing really useful resources.
1: Ladyland is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolich.